Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week also brought us some good news on the vaccine front. An early stage trials, a vaccine candidate from Oxford University and AstraZeneca caused no serious side effects and produced an immune response of both antibodies in T-cell and participants. The U.S. has also paid $1.2 billion to secure at least 300 million doses when it's finally available. For more on this vaccine development, we'll speak to Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. This was the first vaccine, along with one in China, to move into phase three, which is the last phase of trials before a potential approval. So Moderna's also, we've seen good preliminary results from them too. I would say that these three are kind of the front runners, the, the Oxford one, the Moderna one, and then one that's being produced in China. But Oxford's is just a little bit ahead of the Moderna one and where it is in the process at the moment. Basically, the results that were published today said that there were only minor side effects, things like soreness, headaches. Some people felt feverish, perhaps, but no major concerns in terms of side effects. And it did produce an immune response in everybody who got two shots of the vaccine. There's two rounds of immunization with this vaccine. So promising early results. Now we have to see the results from phase three, which is much broader testing and is happening now. And how does this vaccine work? The immune response that it's producing is antibodies and then also T cells as well, right? Right. So this works on two fronts. I was actually just speaking with an epidemiologist who was very impressed by the level of immunity that was generated by this vaccine. That's one of the good indications here is that it's possible to produce a vaccine that does have a strong immune response. The, what we don't know is is this actually going to prevent everybody who gets it from getting coronavirus? This could be they get the virus and then they have an immune response. And in the meantime, they might be able to spread it or it won't be entirely foolproof. We won't know that until there's a longer term testing. And like I said, phase three trials are happening now. So we should get clearer results. So we, we know that, you know, if you get two shots of this vaccine, you will produce antibodies, you will have a level of immunity, but we don't know whether it's going to be 100% effective and we don't know whether you could still get the virus and then fight it off more quickly than you otherwise would have. That's the big question. Last week, British researchers reported that people that get infected with the virus may see these antibodies start fading pretty quickly, maybe within a few months. So that raises that big question of long-term protection, the immunity there. One of the big questions to watch out for after this is who gets all of the vaccines first? I mean, obviously, the whole world wants this. The U.S. government does have a stake in a lot of different vaccine candidates, including this one by Oxford and AstraZeneca. They paid $1.2 billion to secure at least 300 million doses. But that's the big question. And also the point you raised previously that we don't know how long immunity will last also factors into the equation here, right? Because already you need two shots from this particular vaccine. So nearly every American, a really high level of Americans and people around the world would need two shots. That is 
uh, just an astronomical amount of doses to be able to produce and deliver. Then you add in the fact that we don't know how long immunity will last. So if this is a six month thing, I mean, are we going to need to then have enough production for everybody to get another round of vaccinations? This is going to be a logistical nightmare. And yeah, we do have the point now where richer governments are pre-ordering doses of these vaccines, right? The promising ones, even some that are earlier in the process, you know, governments are buying up doses of them in case they work. That's a good thing because it allows them, it gives them resources to fund this production. But it's a bad thing because if you are a middle income country or, you know, a developing country, are you going to be last in line to get this vaccine? And is there going to be enough, you know, even in the first year or so of production for you to get the vaccine? There are people working on this question. This is something that some governments have spoken out on. There may be systems in place by the time these vaccines are are rolling off the line and ready to go. But it's a huge question mark. And I think that's just one of the reasons why we have good news today, but there's a lot more hurdles to jump over. Exactly. Uh, AstraZeneca has committed to making 2 billion doses, and they say maybe 1 billion of those could be available by the end of the year. And that's the thing. I guess they said that it could be cleared for emergency use as early as October, possibly, but it's still going to take a little time to roll it all out. So that would be for really high risk people, it would almost be another phase of testing, right? They would roll it out wider to people who are at particular risk, maybe frontline workers and things would get it early, but it just won't be ready on a massive scale until at some point next year, probably. Early next year is the timeline that Anthony Fauci has put out there. So we're hoping that that's the case, but we we won't know exactly because, you know, as, as we've talked about, this phase three is just getting underway. I mean, it's a scientific marvel that we have three vaccines now heading into phase three trials only seven months after this outbreak was discovered. So it's by far the fastest that anything like this has ever moved. Dave Lawler, world editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Some unfortunate news in the restaurant industry. Many restaurants have hit their breaking point and are permanently calling it quits. Riding the roller coaster of coronavirus restrictions and people wary of eating out, has proved too much for some to stay in business. Over 15,000 restaurants have permanently closed and more could be on the way. For more on how the pandemic has continued to wreak havoc on the restaurant industry, we'll speak to Heather Haddon, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it's really been a roller coaster for these operators in a lot of states now. California mentioned uh, New Mexico has swung back and forth. New York City and New Jersey, where there were some hopes to start indoor dining, they never did resume it and now it's on indefinite hold. So as the pandemic has ground along, I think a lot of restaurants are really just trying to assess what can they do here? Is it worth trying to pour a lot of money into changing their operations to make this work? And for some sit down uh, restaurants in particular, they're just deciding it isn't. You had some numbers from Yelp and according to to them, over 15,000 restaurants have permanently closed during the coronavirus pandemic. The top states were California, Texas, New York, Florida, Illinois. There's a bunch all over the place across the board. One of the restaurants that you featured in your article was Eden. Tell us about their ride because they closed down, then they opened in a modified structure, and they just announced that they had to close because they just can't keep up with it all. They really did everything you could uh, as a sit-down restaurant to try to make it work. So this is a a new American-style restaurant in a trendy part of Chicago, had a catering business, 
had a greenhouse where they grew a lot of their own produce, made a lot of their own pastries and desserts, um, breads to go into the catering business and into their restaurant, had a large 90-seat restaurant. And got a lot of foot traffic, both from, you know, foodies and also people going to see concerts at a local arenas, you know, and now everything has just changed for them. So they had to shut down their indoor dining and all dining when the coronavirus first hit. They retooled things. They had an on-site market where they were selling a lot of their products. And then when they could, they last month in June in Chicago, they started outdoor dining. Uh, they put up a tarp that was traditionally used for their catering business to seat something like 60 diners at one time outside when indoor dining was allowed. Late last month, they had about 20 seats of them. In the end, it just did not seem feasible for them um, on large part because of their expenses, because of high rent costs and just a lot of uncertainty about what would what would the fall look like you know in Chicago it gets cold so outdoor dining you know as opposed to California maybe that's a little bit more possible year round um, not in Chicago so it really became clear to them that with the high costs um, and escalating costs you know all the masks and equipment for employees it just didn't make sense for them rent they're saying that August 1st looks like it's gonna be a day of reckoning for a lot of restaurants that have been either putting off paying their rent to their landlords, but even then the landlords need their money as well. So that's going to be another big day for them. And a lot of restaurants tap the federal PITEC protection program, but they're saying that a lot of that money is gone now and we don't know what future aid is going to be given by the government right now. That's right. There's a lot of discussions about another relief package and the restaurant industry has certainly asked for something more substantial and something very targeted to the industry. They would like, I think it's something like $120 billion to try to help restaurants stem this whole situation, um, stave it off. But that's going to take a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of other industries that also need help and want help. And Congress already did a whole relief package. So it's just not something that restaurants can count on. And they have bills. Um, that being said, you know, the some areas of the restaurant industry are doing okay. Fast food with drive throughs is doing okay. Um, other chains, again, that have a big to-go operation are doing okay. It's the sit-down independent restaurants where it's really about an experience inside, eating a long meal. I mean, you're just not going to do that right now. So it's really tough for them. Heather Haddon, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thanks so much. And finally, for this week, we're all looking forward to the end game for COVID-19. When the spread of the virus slows down significantly or stops altogether because enough people have immunity to it. Whether it's by vaccine or enough people catching it, we're trying to get to that point of herd immunity. But the math to get there is tricky. For more on the variables factored into getting to herd immunity, we'll speak to Kevin Hartnett senior math writer at Quantum Magazine. So herd immunity, as you said, is the percentage of a population that needs to have antibodies to a disease to prevent that disease from spreading further. And it seems like a very simple calculation. There's like a formula that anyone could do on a piece of paper on their desk that tells you what the herd immunity threshold is. It's one minus one over R naught, and R naught is the number of people on average that each infected person infects. So it's a very simple simple formula to work out. 
for COVID-19, the kind of the best kind of estimate is about 2.5 for r naught that each infected person infects 2.5 other people. So that, if you plug that into the formula, 2.5, that gives you a herd immunity threshold of 60%. But that is a very naive, simple calculation. And there's, in fact, kind of a lot of complexity in the population that makes that number, um, I don't know, there's just a lot more kind of uncertainty about what that number actually is. And it has to do with differences between people and how susceptible they are to getting infected. And it has to do with differences in places, how there are some places like cities and nursing homes where the disease spreads much more easily and the herd immunity threshold is therefore higher. And other places, perhaps rural places with lower population density where the disease spreads, it's more difficult for it to spread. And so the threshold is lower. So there actually is a lot of nuance to what at first blush appears to be a very straightforward calculation. Every little variable is going to throw the number out of whack and, and maybe increase it or lower it. There's di there's different cases where it could lower the number needed for herd immunity. Do we have any sense right now, how many percentage of people that have had coronavirus so far? There are estimates. There are serological studies out of um, especially the kind of the hardest hit places. Spain, which was one of the first places to really have a bad outbreak of COVID-19. They did serological studies across the whole country and came up with numbers between for Madrid, the hardest hit area of the country, and other parts of the country where it was quite a bit lower, more like 5% or lower. I've seen numbers for New York City, which was the, you know, the original epicenter here, estimating that some boroughs or some neighborhoods in New York City have up to 68%, almost 70% have been infected. I think there are estimates that New York City or the New York region, New York City region as a whole, it's 25% of the population. So like pretty big numbers, although um, certainly on a larger scale, I don't think that we have a strong handle on how many people actually have antibodies at this point to COVID-19. So in some of those areas, and New York could be an example, we've seen numbers dropping, been getting a better handle on it as we've seen cases rise in other parts of the country, some places that had early successes even, or, or lower numbers to begin with. But yeah, still a very difficult number to reach there. So tell us about some of these other variables. I know there's a heterogeneity of susceptibility, and you were talking about that a little bit ago, the different variables that cause somebody to be more likely or less likely to get infected. How does this throw the number for herd immunity off? Sure. I'll say a couple of things. I mean, the first is when we do vaccine campaigns and we estimate how much of the population we need to vaccinate to guarantee herd immunity, we assume that every person in a population is equally likely to get and spread the disease. And so that's kind of a naive calculation. And with COVID-19, you might come to say 60% of the population needs this vaccine to prevent the disease from spreading rapidly again. But as soon as you stop to think about it, you realize, well, no, not everyone in a population is equally likely to get sick and spread the disease. People with compromised immune systems, more likely to get the disease. People in kind of high touch professions, um, certainly healthcare workers, maybe bus drivers, grocery store workers, more likely to get the disease than someone who is working from home. Someone who lives in an apartment building, more likely maybe to get it than someone who lives out on his own in the woods. So it's kind of intuitively obvious to us that not everyone is equally likely to get the disease. And these differences between people are what you refer to as the heterogeneity of susceptibility. There are even other factors that are kind of maybe less obvious. I mean, we're just born different. We 
develop differently over the course of our lifetimes. That's a quote from a researcher named Gabriela Gomez, who appeared in my recent story. These differences are, you know, genetic differences in our cells that affect kind of our susceptibility, but it's also things like density of nose hairs has an effect on our likelihood of getting infected. I and mean, we all know wow. people who get sick all the time, and we all know people who are like, well, I haven't had a cold in 10 years. So, I mean, we kind of know these differences are out there. And this heterogeneity in, in individual characteristics are what make it so that it's in fact not everyone's equally likely to get the disease, both due to their behaviors and things about kind of their body. And typically, as you said, this heterogeneity lowers the herd immunity threshold. It kind of makes it harder for the disease to spread than you might naively think. It means that kind of a smaller percentage of the population needs to be infected or have antibodies in order to control the pandemic in this case. So what's the bottom line for this? According to some standard models, we need about 60% of the U.S. population to have had this, uh, the virus. Some other experts said, you know, between 40 and 50%. But ultimately, what is it going to take us to get there? Obviously, we need help with the vaccine. But what's going to get us to that herd immunity so that sure. we can finally be done with this? So, I mean, the bottom line is we don't know. And I think that's the most important point of all is that there's just so much uncertainty about COVID-19, including what the herd immunity threshold for a wildly spreading virus or naturally spreading virus as opposed to vaccine immunity. So there's just a lot of uncertainty about many aspects of this disease, including what the naturally spreading herd immunity threshold is. And that certainly is a reason to be very cautious in kind of how we approach policy around this. One epidemiologist I spoke to from my, my recent article likened it to playing you know, Russian roulette. If we kind of take a herd immunity, quote, strategy, it's like kind of playing Russian roulette with this extremely deadly thing that once it's kind of out there, it's like very hard to control. So the bottom line is, A, there's a lot of uncertainty and that weighs in favor of a, a lot of caution. Now, as a matter of kind of what that, the threshold might actually be, researchers are attempting to tease it out. So there, we've got 60% is the kind of standard naive estimate. Most epidemiologists I talked to were kind of willing to say that the, the naturally occurring threshold is lower than that. Maybe 40, 50% was what most people told me. But there are also some studies out there now that are putting that number even lower, including one by a researcher in Europe named Gabriela Gomez, who I just mentioned, who thinks that the herd immunity threshold is probably around 20%, in which case some of these places we just talked about, Madrid, New York, Lombardy, may already have reached it. So what does that mean for where we go from here? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see in the fall are those places susceptible to second waves? I mean, they clearly had first waves that have clearly died down, but people are still doing it like a ton of distancing. We haven't gone back to normal. So it'd be interesting to see in those places, can second waves really take off if people are doing more normal things like you know, sending all their kids back to school or going into the office? So that's certainly one source of uncertainty or one thing we'll be watching for. And then as for kind of other places that, well, I mean, the, the number of places that have not been badly hit is certainly shrinking by the day, unfortunately. But well, no, I think the bottom line is is getting to herd immunity naturally is a chancy and deadly proposition. We know the numbers out of New York, tens of thousands of deaths to maybe get to that naturally occurring herd immunity threshold. And we don't want to go through that everywhere. I mean, it's just it's just a, a far too painful consequence to imagine, in which case, you know, the order of the day is try and hunker down and wait it out as best we can until we can achieve herd immunity through a vaccine. Kevin Hartnett, senior math writer at Quanta Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.